American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. So today I'm wearing my power tie because we're going to talk about the era when the U.S. really rises to economic superpower status. And that's the period in between the Civil War and World War I, roughly. What some scholars call this era is the Second Industrial Revolution. But even that term doesn't really begin to capture what happens in the U.S. What we see is a period of extended, dramatic growth. It averages about 2.0% per year. Uh, and it's sustained, even though there are two major depressions in that time period. But it's not just the quantity, that kind of change, that, that matters. What also matters is the qualitative change. You have tremendous transformations in the way that the market is linked together. In fact, the way that all markets are linked together, whether we're talking about agricultural markets, industrial markets, consumer markets, or financial markets. We also see qualitative changes in how goods are made, how they are used, the kinds of energy that are used to produce them. All of these changes are going to produce a new United States and a new kind of capitalism. Now, the most important force, perhaps, in all of this integration and linking and speeding up is the railroad. As railroad networks are extended throughout the country and as railroad traffic gets more and more efficient, especially as that traffic passes through and out of Chicago, Chicago becoming this sort of major hub in the National Railroad Network, what we find is that the markets for all kinds of commodities change. As products that are produced on one side of the country are now increasingly sold on the other side of the country. So what we see is a national integration of markets, and it's even an international integration of markets. Now, this changes things on the sort of broad geographical scope. So, for instance, grain farmers even in northern Italy are now competing with grain farmers in North Dakota, and that has tremendous effects. But it also changes the way in which products are made. So, for instance, grain that's grown in North Dakota is now no longer being sold in individual bags, each of which is labeled with the name of the farmer. Increasingly, that grain is poured into a gigantic silo and sold off in uniform chunks. Grain is being turned into a commodity. So another interesting development is what happens to pigs. If grain is turned into a commodity because it's assembled together in bigger and bigger piles so that you can't tell apart the grain made by Farmer Smith from the grain made by Farmer Jones, what happens to pigs is actually a kind of disassembly process. Pigs from all over the Midwest are brought to Chicago, to the stockyards there, and large uh, butcher shops, which ultimately become butcher factories, if you will, are built, which break down the process of breaking down the pig, and a classic sort of Adam Smith assembly line that some observers start to call a disassembly line. One person cuts uh, the pig uh, into quarters. Another person cuts each quarter of the pig smaller and smaller. Uh, the next person cuts only the chops. Uh, the next person only cuts the hams. So that the pig, which began as an individual animal, is now simply a huge collection of uniform cuts of meat. To top off the process, railroad companies invent refrigerated cars refrigerated cars 
which large meat companies then use to transport pork and eventually other kinds of meat all around the country, pushing local farmers and local, farmer and local butchers increasingly to the side as large integrated corporations come to be the main purveyors of meat in the United States. Now all of this integration of markets and commodification of the basic necessities of life is taking place in the context of a significant change in money, a significant change in the quantity of currency in the economy. During the Civil War, the government printed so-called greenbacks, paper money, which inflated the money supply. Over the next 15 years after the end of the Civil War, the federal government pulls those greenbacks out of circulation. And soon, the only thing circulating in the economy in terms of money is gold, as well as paper representations of gold, like checks and things like that. Because the economy is now dependent on the amount of gold that exists that's been mined and turned into coins for its, for its currency, the amount of currency is not necessarily keeping up with the amount of goods that are being produced. In fact, the relationship between the two is diverging over time. This pushes down the price of individual commodities as more commodities are chasing what seems like a shrinking number of dollars. This change, what economists call price deflation, is long-lasting and systematic. It lasts from the 1870s all the way up until the beginning of the 20th century, and it has significant effects. For instance, if you're a producer of primary commodities, particularly a small-scale producer, like let's say a cotton farmer or a grain farmer or a pig farmer, what happens is that the commodities that you make and you sell are decreasing all the time in price. Now that's not just an effect of currency, it's also an effect of the integration of markets that railroads and corporations are pushing forward. You are increasingly in competition with farmers from all over the world. But it's pretty bad for you. It's good for consumers who want to buy those, those products, the grain, the pig, the so on and so forth. But it's, it's pretty bad for you, especially if you've borrowed money. Because if you borrow money in 1875, when uh, a dollar uh, was worth less and brought you less goods, and you're now paying it back in 1880 when a dollar is worth more, and it costs you more goods in order to get that dollar, you are paying a very high price for your credit. On the other hand, if you're the sort of person in the economy who is lending money, this is a very good development for you, this long price deflation, because the money that you are getting paid back is getting you more and more goods. So this long change in the relationship between currency and commodities, which happens in the course of the second industrial revolution, is going to create a big shift of wealth from primary producers to people who lend money, and also to those who can produce really large quantities of commodities, like the, the new factories and the new industrialists. They're gonna do very well. On the other hand, the primary producers are going to decrease in status and decrease in wealth. And that, that divergence is going to drive a lot of the politics of this era. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash MooC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.